Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. We might wanted to do was first um, give the panelists a chance in front of an audience to react to things they've heard from others today. Um, Allison, are you going to change anything you're doing? Uh, um, whether, whether others agree with Pat that there are no, no serious ethical questions other than worrying about the public right away. So any thoughts from the panelists? Uh, we'll start with that. I can, I can go first. Um, I'll definitely change brain farms to something else. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> no, that was uh, very insightful. Um, and, and, and just to, to, to clarify, we were discussing, so those neurons, they do spike. I mean, you can patch clump a single neuron in an organoid, and, and, and they behave electrophysiologically like uh, a human neuron. So they, as far as we can tell, smells like neurons, behave like neurons, taste like neurons. So they, they're definitely, this kind of discussion we actually have a long time ago when scientists start to differentiate stem cells into neurons. And uh, the criticism was, uh, how do we know these are neurons? And actually, one of uh, the crucial experiments um, to prove that they are neurons was to transplant those neurons in a mouse embryonic brain and let the animals turn. Those neurons, they, they, they become fully integrated into the mouse brain. You can stimulate the mouse brain and see that they form actual connections um, to, to the host. So a human and a mouse can make synapses. So that was one of the proofs that these can become fully mature neurons. Uh, the question for the organoids, obviously they are not um, embodied, uh, they are outside, but as far as you can tell, I mean, everything suggests that they, um, they behave like neurons. Um, all right, I'll, I'll stop here. So I did have one thought, and that is that um, Ultimately, it would be nice to be able to transplant organoid tissue into um, a, a human who had a brain disorder of some kind, let's say a stroke or a lesion or a Parkinson's. So we've talked a little, little bit about this, but let's suppose that, that, that it's somewhere in uh, V1, or if you like, further up the uh, visual hierarchy, V4, V5 or something. So, so you take these and you put it into my V4, and the ones you're putting in, of course, have not lived my life. They haven't, they haven't learned to identify a, a, a boxer from a Burmese mountain dog. So, so how do you think, I mean, like, presumably they'll set up housekeeping in some way, but will they, do you think, sort of you know, be able to, to categorize things that I haven't been able to categorize since the lesion. I think it'll be similar to what happens when people first got cornea transplant 50 or 60 years ago. There are some people who are born, um, who are born with eyes, but they, they, as babies already, they had such dense corneas that they effectively were born without visual input. And then later on as adults, when, when sight became available to them because they got this transplant, Early on, they had great difficulty dealing with vision, and literally, their brain had to wire itself up. In us, it happens, you know, when, when we're born the first several months, but in these adults, it took much longer. So I assume in your case, uh, Pat, if you had this done early on, you would have to retrain yourself. So one would hope that this cortical organoid had rules of plasticity like LTP, like spike time-dependent plasticity, and then you would have to go through this training, this remedial process after your stroke. You get this new brain, then you have to go through a remedial process where it trains itself up. But ultimately, if it's a real thing, it should integrate smoothly. That seems reasonable, um, and and it, we are continually amazed by the plasticity of of, uh, of brain tissue. And, and by the way, that would be like a, a functional test uh, for those neurons again to fully integrate it into a network. Yeah. It might be more difficult if it were frontal structure. So so if it was somewhere in the PFC, you know, somewhere up here. Uh, which apparently we use for so-called executive function. Uh, that might take a while. I might have to wander around the world and get into trouble quite a bit in order for the, my brain to tune You get itself. to relive your teenage years. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, do no. stupid stuff. Yeah, right. <laughs> but will you be responsible for your actions? Yes, you're older than 18. 
My organoid made me do it. That's right. <laughs> so, um, so anybody have questions from the audience? Um, we would want you to definitely use the microphone so everybody can hear you. I think there is an ethical question already now, uh, just because you know, it's sort of demonstrated by the talks in a way, because what we've heard is just three, three different theories of you know, what it takes to uh, be conscious or sentient, and they're, they're different, right? So we've got a kind of information processing one, a kind of similar anatomical one from Pat, and an embodiment one. If we then you know, try to apply those to the animal kingdom, we'll see that probably they're they're going to make you know they'll disagree over certain certain critters will will score differently on these things, and so for those critters, if we were experimenting on them, if we were say looking at an octopus, and you know if we did an anatomical one, maybe it might not look like sufficiently like us or or that, but maybe it might score very highly you know, on uh, information processing or uh, embodiment. And so then we would have an ethical question about what to do, you know, whether we're allowed to do that with the octopus or, or maybe it's a, a fly or whatever. Uh, then uh, given that uncertainty over which is the right theory, uh, don't we then have a, an ethical uh, challenge right before us then, given that we don't, you know, we're in the face of this uncertainty? Look, we all exist in the face of uncertainty. So, for instance, most theories I know assume that all, in fact, all of us, I think, agree that all mammals are conscious. Yet we, most of us continue to happily eat them, eat and the flesh of animals, although we all know they are raised under atrocious conditions. So, you know, people are perfectly willing to live with, 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 these, uh, with these inconsistencies. And that well, yeah, but there, that there is an ethical question about whether you should eat, ma- eat uh, Yeah, animals. yes, I think there is one, and I think there's an obvious answer, but people continue to, be, to, to, continue to exist w- without delving into these um, 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 and contradictions. If you're going to wait until there's a final, well-established theory of consciousness that every philosopher and scientist wait on, it ain't going to happen. <laughs> well, I'm not saying a wait, but uh, yeah, I'm just saying that there, there is this ethical issue then. I mean, just as there is, so we have that same ethical issue with, with the animal, animal, you know, with eating. So I'm just saying that in experimenting, so we have that, it seems like we're in that situation. So I'm not saying I'd know the answer or that we should wait, wait for the answer, but but this, I mean, this ethical issue has been with us for a long time. I mean, it's been with us, I mean, as Christoph mentioned, I mean, since animal experimentation um, has arisen, at least it's been with us since then. I mean, one of the, I don't know what to call it, one of the conundrums or paradoxes of a lot of consciousness research is that um, when we're not researching on human beings, we research on animals like monkeys precisely because we think that they, you know, have aspects of conscious experience like ours. But nonetheless, we, you know, do all sorts of things to them that... Um, if we were really weighting their interests and their sentience, we might not do. So I think, I think those problems are with us anyway, independently of theories of, of consciousness that you know, we can debate about in the lab or in the armchair. I think ultimately, I mean, as practicing neuroscientists, we ultimately it has to be about, the, you know, a utilitarian position has to be about the minimization of suffering of all of us. So the, the, the only true justification can't be, well, I'm just curious and I want to know. And so in the willing of this pursuit, in the pursuit of this e- egotistical drive to know I'm going to sacrifice thousands of animals, but it has to be ultimately, if we want to understand and minimize the suffering that's autism and schizophrenia, et cetera, et cetera, we, ha- we have to do these, an- these experiments and we have to do it with compassion, realizing these are not just reagents, but these are conscious creatures. They sacrifice their life for us, so we have to treat them with, with care and, and and, and with compassion, I think that's the only legitimate way of doing this. So my question is for Koch, and it um, starts with this um, diagram that you made where you put consciousness on one axis and intelligence on the other. And then you say intelligence is about, these are different, and intelligence is more artificial intelligence. And the uh, consciousness, the, the brain organites you put then with the consciousness axis. And so at that point, I was remembered at, to the robot again from you, and um, where you know you have this, you know, robot training the organites, and I was remember, reminding myself of a thesis committee that I just participated in, where the, somebody made a soft robot, and then trained 
the computer to, you know, and it looked like exactly the same as this Organite was trained, you know, but the computer was trained with some programs called Q-Learning to walk. So I was, you know, I'm just wondering, my question is, so what is the difference between training these Organites and training a computer program and maybe even you know, these organites are going to be our new type of computers, or, you know, what, what, what is, you know, the two axes, you know, shouldn't be the organites on the intelligence axis. Well, no, so in principle, what, what all this new technology gives us, it allows us to populate the entire, uh, I call it the, I, the IC plane, the intelligence consciousness plane, that that through uh, natural evolution, uh, evolution by natural selection, we have sort of this monotonic relationship between the complexity of its of a brain, its intelligence, and its ability to consciously experience the world. But now, with we have at least I claim two instances of engineered system. One, uh, current you know deep mind, including you know the Q algorithm that's sort of purely intelligent on the intelligence axis without having without feeling like anything. On the other hand, we're beginning to build brain organoids that right now at least have no no I/O, so there's no intelligence because there's no behavior but they may be conscious but now of course we can merge these technologies right we can do cyborgs we can do brain machine interfaces we can do organoid uh, brain interfaces so in principle we could populate this entire plane where you might end up have have engineered creatures that have high level of consciousness as well as high level of intelligence i mean and science fiction is full of that um um you know the 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 uh the androids of do you know um, of Blade Runner, for instance, right? The replicants—they are sort of supposedly some sort of bioengineered system, yet they're they're conscious. In fact, they're more conscious than humans. Um, my question is also to Professor Koch. Um, you, as well as Ned Block, um, divide consciousness as phenomenal and access consciousness, and uh, I'm wondering how to justify the being of this phenomenal consciousness, what type of uh, phenomenological content is there? Is there any form of intentionality in this phenomenal content? And in that case, it would be just another name for access consciousness itself. How to, how to justify this phenomenal consciousness that has no intentionality, if that is the case? So, a, so access consciousness is just a subset of, of phenomenal consciousness, right? If you ask me what, what do I see right now, I can, you know, I can describe certain things, and that, but that's just a small subset of everything I actually see, uh, see. And I think by definition that has intentionality. I, I don't see how I could dissociate those two. And so the question is, do these things have, have phenomenal consciousness? And if they do, then they will have, it will feel, it will be about something. It will be about color or space or whatever they feel. So I think, yes, they will have intentionality. I don't think that's an additional property above and beyond. So it seems like there, there are, there's at least uh, two different kinds of questions that, that have been banging around in some of the discussions. So one is, what are the kinds of things that constitute or are required for, or the kind of, uh, uh, that are required for consciousness? And then there's the set of moral ethical questions about, uh, about when are there worries about these technologies and their deployment that are lurking here. And, and those questions might overlap or come apart in lots of interesting ways, and, and there's lots of ways in which real-world practices might be uh, you know, morally dubious or things that we can raise intelligible questions about. But, uh, but I take it that, that at, at least at the polar opposite ends of the spectrum, we have no problems turning on and off mechanical devices. We don't think there's anything morally vexed about that. In the case of human beings, if we're turning on and off consciousness as is convenient for our purposes, we begin to get worries, more worrisome about that if other people are doing it to someone else. Um, so, so for those of you who are actively working on these kinds of things, maybe this is a question for, for Allison first and foremost about, so um, uh, what keeps you up at night? <laughs> uh, what's, what's the point at which the technology of the organoid mechanical interface gets to a point where you think, you know, maybe I should be thinking more about this before we, we flip that switch. Um, what would it take for you to think, here's a place where I start to get uncomfortable without more reflection? Yeah, so uh, that, that's a great question. Uh, my goal, and I, I, I think most of uh, the neurosciences in the, in the biomedical field, is really to 
uh, create some quality of life for people who are suffering from neurological disorders, right? Um, so to get to that point, you really need to improve your model. And we have a history of um, uh, bad modeling, uh, especially with animal models that didn't took us that far. Uh, we learn a lot of things, but um, I mean, the translational ability of these models are something that uh, we're not happy with. So we, we um, and I, I think... Um, some of in this field sees the brain organoids as perhaps um, a complementary solution to the models that we already have. So ultimately, I want to get as close as possible to uh, the realistic um, endpoint to the human brain. So I'll get there because that's how I will understand uh, a diseased brain happens. I might not need to get there if I understand uh, how the disease starts in the first place. So maybe the early embryonic phases is where um, all the problems related to schizophrenia or autism appears, and I can fix it later on by just knowing what happens in, in the early stages. But that might not be the case for all kinds of diseases. It might be that you need a full-form uh, cortex with a thalamus to understand uh, schizophrenia, right? Um, so my inclination is is to go as far as I can to the realistic model. I definitely understand um, uh, the ethical implications that will get there, and um, and, um, and 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 I uh, I don't know when would be uh, a, a moment uh, to pause and stop, and that's why we're having this meeting. Um, and I I don't expect that we're gonna leave here this room with a, a clear answer. I think it's just the beginning of a conversation, right? Um, but. Uh, but, but definitely there is a moment where we're going to give a moral status to these organoids. And I think that's the, the time when uh, we're going to have to create um, uh, rules and regulations as we do for hum human subjects in clinical trials or animals for research. Um, these brain organoids, we have to decide how many are important to answer your question. How would you dispose them uh, in a more perhaps humanized way? Um, so all the, the same rules that we do for for animal research or, or, or human subjects in clinical trial. Um, I think we'll, we'll get there. I, um, I, I think science um, is evolving in a fast pace in this field. Um, I'm not too surprised that in the next uh, five, 10 years, we're going to learn how to vascularize those things, how to uh, plug the different pieces, uh, cortical, thalamus, and, and generate circuitries in there. I think we're going to get there. Um, and um, it, it might be uh, earlier than we think. Um, so this is, I, mean, I want to follow up on my question before, which and back to the uh, on the same thought. I think for many of us, when we were seeing Allison's presentation of the parts of the brain in the dish, I think okay, it's just in a dish, and I I don't know much about the the philosophy of consciousness. But when I saw uh, Brad Boytek's spider robot, I intuitively thought, uh oh, okay. And so now I have a word for this, like, you know, embodiment basically is required. So. My question is, is the one thing that's missing from watching that little film of the, of the spider thing walking around is evidence that it could suffer? So, I mean, so, and I, you know, imagine, like, it's a, a space that's this big, and if it keeps hitting against the wall because it wants to escape, and it's, you know, frustrated or whatever, but, like, what, is that the one piece of evidence that that robot is, is missing that would then be evidence for you that it has consciousness? Yeah, well, that's a great question. So, I mean, I, I would need to know more of the details of, of what's going on in that particular interface, but correct me if, if I'm wrong, but it, it, as I understood it, um, it, it's not a situation in which you have, um, you, don't, you don't have the kind of sort of intimate sensory motor interface that you would have <clears throat> when um, the, the system is regulating its own sensory motor activity, and that sensory motor activity is regulating its own neuronal activity. Is, is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. So if so, it looked to me as if it was a kind of informational, you know, link, but it didn't have that kind of tight coupling. Were it to develop to have that kind of tight coupling, then I would be inclined to say, oh, now we're in the presence of a system that has a certain kind of, let's call it autonomy or, you know, uh, self-regulative capacity that would be what I would think would be required for us to talk about a system with, with interests. Let's put it that way. Now, whether, whether, um, what the relationship of that is precisely to sentience in the sense of the capacity to feel pain and suffer is, is still a tricky question because, 
I mean, that takes us into the zone again where we, we don't really have a worked out biological understanding of the relationship of those two things, say organismic self-regulation and sentience or consciousness. Um, but we'd be much closer to a situation where I would think, well, that's, that's the kind of system where um, it, it, it has a kind of, uh, I would call it a kind of biological or functional autonomy. And, and in the case of those kinds of systems, then, um, yeah, I would, I would have all sorts of ethical, ethical questions would come I up for me. I wouldn't have any ethical questions. Oh, good. Okay. And here's why. My Roomba does all those things. Your, your what? Sorry? My Roomba. My vacuum, my no, autonomous no, vacuum no, cleaner it doesn't. runs it around the room. No, 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 it no. gets feedback. No, 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 it doesn't, it doesn't. It finds certain things aversive. It never goes no, there no, again. No, 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 I mean, no, no, no. it learns. No, no, not, not, um, not really. I, I don't think you, so. The main reason. The bugs in your room do. Yeah. The, the main reason is that it's got no thalamus. It's got, it doesn't have the enabling structures that we, so far, believe are necessary. Now, it, it might turn out, as we know more and more about reptiles, that we'll find that, you know, you don't need a thalamus. All you need is, you know, I don't know, ventral pallidum or something. But uh, at the moment, it doesn't have the enabling structures. And it's... Okay, not quite, a Roomba is not quite there, but it's pretty darn close. And I have no compunction about kicking my Roomba when I'm angry. Just, you know, haul off and, anyway, yeah. There's an instructive difference if you look at the, the reaction to an, a noxious, painful stimuli between some insects and mammals. So let's say if you work on a, on a cricket and you cut, uh, you cut its leg because you want to insert an electrode, then the, the, the leg sort of tries to push you know, off the, the scalpel, yeah. a local reflex. But the, the, the locus continues to eat. Up front, so up front it eats while you know it's sort of its leg. So there's no central, there's no central state. It seems to be a local reflex. Well, if you do that for more advanced, so for example, for bee, or certainly for a mammal like a mouse, a mouse would do everything it can to fight off that. So it's a much more centralized. So, so just because there's a very simple aversive reflex that by itself doesn't signal, but if it's really centralized, if it seems to interfere with everything else that that creature does, then It's one of, you know, many criteria that I think indicate that there's something more there than just a local uh, reflex. Uh, so I have a question for Pat. So uh, I think in response to a question earlier, you mentioned that you thought we should avoid getting bogged down by hypothetical concerns. Um, and I probably shouldn't have said that, <laughs> but anyway. Well, yeah, so my question is, you know, at what point should we start worrying? Because, you know, once you have something where there is... Um, you know, wide, widespread agreement that something has moral consideration, it's sort of too late to start thinking about where the limits are on research. You, it makes sense to try and work these things out beforehand, even if that does mean uh, that you slow down research while you try and work these things out beforehand. So I, mean, there, I think there's a question there about, uh, yeah, when, when do we start trying to work these things out? Yeah, it's not that I think that you shouldn't, you know, have foresight and plan for the future. It's just that um, there are some questions that are so far in the future, they're so unconstrained that, that it's just not productive to spend a lot of time whacking away at them. Um, but if they are significantly constrained, then, then it, of course it can be very important and very useful. I mean, part, partly the way I look at it, too, is that, you know, in our lives, there are many, many huge, moral, practical questions. And perhaps this is even more true in, in the last decade here. Um, so there are many practical questions. And when someone, you know, tries to take my afternoon by asking me to speculate about what would I do if Jeffrey Epstein wanted to have his brain uh, recreated in a, uh, in a dish and would, you know, in, in order to make this happen, would pay MIT $100 million or whatever it turned out to be. I mean, I guess I'm going to go back to some of the practical questions that are really, really demanding. So I wish I could answer your question by saying, here is the point, here is the cutoff. But these are judgment questions, 
and and we all have to you know use our judgment as best we can but uh I guess I felt that as a philosopher for so many years, I got trapped into, and I, I realize I said this before, but I, I got trapped into thinking about thought experiments that in retrospect were just ridiculous, like Chalmers' zombie experiment, thought experiment. I mean, as Francis used to say, there's too much thought and not enough experiment. And... Um, so, so there isn't a good answer to your question. And some people have more tolerance than I have for, for really far-out, unconstrained speculations. And sometimes those speculations, maybe in, in physics, for example, might turn out to be quite useful. Um, and sometimes in neuroscience, they might turn out to be quite useful. So I don't want to say nobody should ever do it. It's just that my own personal preference is I don't like to waste my time on, on, on questions that are totally unconstrained, you know, like the, the, the trolley problem, if I may take another, you know, really stupid example of, of a time-wasting thing in moral philosophy. Um, yeah, that's my two bits worth. I have a question that is maybe too sci-fi. And I apologize if it doesn't even make sense, because uh, I didn't know about organoid until this morning. So I may be asking something that is, is based on a wrong assumption. But like, uh, as my understanding, uh, for you to make an organite, you must have stem cells, right? That's correct. That yeah. comes from someone. Uh, it can come from different sources, but yes. Yeah. Okay, so... Um, Based on the principle that the stem cells come from someone, and you use them to make an organoid, and let's say that you are able to create an organoid that may develop to have a conscience or have a be sentient or something like this, how do you think that is the ethical implications regarding the person who gave the cells in the first place? Uh, I mean, like informed consent or something like this, like because uh, when the person gave you the cells to create a step cell to make the organite, she might not have think about it like, yes, I'm going to create a organite who has a conscious and is a like person. And I, I just was thinking about it like maybe this is way too sci-fi, but like, no, 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 that no. was it, what it, kept saying in my mind. It's like, a real practical question, because uh, uh, my language has evolved. Uh, in, in the past, my constant forms would say, uh, you will take cells from you or your kid with this disease to make uh, brain cells in my lab. Um, now I have to evolve that language, um, and, and then I add, I'll, 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 I can also make a, a, a brain organoid, and I explain what is a brain organoid. Um, now my language has evolved even more. Now I would say that um, there is a remote possibility, but there is a possibility that some of these organoids will achieve consciousness. We don't know. We don't even agree on how to measure that. But that's in my constant form. The question now, is, are, are the families or the subjects fully aware or do they understand what I'm saying? Um, and I, I try to explain as much as I can, but I don't know if they would grasp all the uh, complexity of what they're signing up. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that it's, it's very possible that they don't fully understand what is the ramifications. But I was, I, I was, uh, it's a good surprise for me that you actually think about it like way before it happens. But you, you have an informed consent that you put this. So you kind of let people know that, okay, that might happen. And even though you might not understand what this really means, it's here, and they are signing for this. So That's right, because I think most people, uh, they see the goals of the research, and, I, and that's what I always say. I mean, this is uh, try to benefit people with these, the same disease as your child or, or as you, and, um, and then, I mean, these, uh, all the details, I think, becomes, like, secondary because they want a cure, they want a treatment, they want a, a science to, to progress. But Legally, uh, who do they belong to, these brain organites? Do they belong to the donor or to you or to...? Um, uh, in theory, they belong to the university. 
Uh, not to the donor. Not to the donor. All the uh, when they sign, I mean, all the materials uh, would belong to the university. They uh, they they waive all the rights um, to the research. Yeah. I have a quick question. So, what I my background is in cord blood transplants. So, in the case if you were to receive uh, a family member gave you a sample of their child, um, once that child becomes eighteen, who's who owns that? Would it still be the university because now the child is 18 years old and now they own that? Yeah, so that, that's a great question. You, you might answer them better than me. Um, uh, if I fully understand, I mean, uh, the parent gives the consent for that. That's correct, yeah. And let's suppose, and, and, and most of my work is really on neurological conditions where the kids cannot really, uh, even if they become 18, cannot respond by themselves. But uh, in, in conditions that are more subtle, um, that, that they can withdraw from their research. Um, am, am I correct on that? Yeah, well, we, we need a lawyer here to be sure. But <laughs> my understanding is that the informed consent documents, whether parents signing for a child or um, for yourself, are written to say, as Allison said, that you're providing materials to this research project all rules indicate that those data, those materials, belong to the institution, even though Allison is probably going to be the one who decides what to do with them. So I, th- I think that that would be, you'd be stuck in some senses. <laughs> oh, and, and just one small clarification. Uh, when they sign, they have the rights to withdraw from the study at any point. So if the child becomes 18 and says, I don't want uh, my cells again in the Motri lab, so he can ask for whoever signed the consent to withdraw um, uh, from from the research, knowing that these cells might be already distributed to others, and I will not have access to destroy all the cells that has been distributed. John, uh, I have a question. So Pat has some brain preconditioned structures for consciousness. My question for Allison is. How much scientific development would we need for you to be able to grow those components in the lab? Yeah, so we were discussing that. Like, for, for example, um, there is a, a, a student in the lab trying to, to make that cortico-thalamus connection. Uh, how good is the thalamus that we can create from stem cells? doesn't have all the um, uh, sub-regionalization sub, uh, of uh, the thalamus that you would expect in a fully mature brain. Uh, but we do have some markers suggesting that, yeah, these are most uh, thalamic um, uh, neurons. And um, as far as we can tell, there's another group who actually showed that they, they do can uh, interact with, 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 with each other. So this has been done already. So... Um, our own limitation is to know the signals or the factors that are required to recreate the specific structures in the brain. As we learn more how to do that, uh, I think we can, we can do it. Uh, we, the, the cells are pluripotent. They have uh, the capacity to become anything as long as you know how to guide them. We know how to guide it uh, for the cortex. The thalamus, yeah, we, we are learning how to do it. We're going to get better over time. So... Science, it's hard to predict. It, it might go super slow. It, it might jump eventually, and we learn how to make all the pieces at once. Yeah. So, Pat, um, your, other, your previous principle was um, we will extend, once we know it t- required for human consciousness, we'll generally err on the side of caution and grant that same perspective to all, all mammals because mammals have these preconditions, et cetera, et cetera. If he was to show you a brain in a dish that actually had those components. We wouldn't have any way of knowing consciousness, but having the structures that are the prerequisites, would that be enough in your um, evaluation to err on the side of caution and think this has the potential for consciousness even though it's just the structures? I would, cons- I would think that, that if, and it wouldn't just be the thalamus, of yeah. course, you know, be, because brainstem structures are important, although Christoph, I think, thinks you could just, you know, pour in the, in the uh, serotonin or the... the uh, well, not pour, but yes. Well, <laughs> literally sprinkle. Um, um, but, uh, but then, yeah, I, I think we would have to take it all very seriously. But, but let me just also say um, 
that that connecting thalamus to cortex is a tricky, tricky thing because there's many parts to the thalamus. There's this rind on the outside, there's the intralaminar on the inside, then there's a very specific nuclei like for vision, for touch, and so on. And uh, they connect to cortex. If it's visual cortex, for example, there's also feedback about ten, on the order of about 10 times as many fibers going back as going forward. So you'd have to make, make sure you had the whole kit and caboodle, as it were. Uh, but were that to happen, then I think we would be in the domain where we would seriously have to ask whether or not the thing there had some form of consciousness. And then I think I agree with Christoph that the real question is, uh, is, is it suffering? Um, I mean, probably we don't care too much if it's happy, if it's, as he said, hanging out in the dish. That could, you know, that could be a better life for lots of us. Um, but if it's suffering, then, then yeah, we will have to find the means to, de- to determine that. Yeah. But we also have to be careful that we don't get too much hung up on humans. There are cases of parallel evolution where other creatures evolved similar evolved also consciousness having very different structures so if you look at uh, octopus anybody you know there are lots of things you, you can see all those fantastic youtube t- uh, videos you know for octopus taking a shell and hiding they have all the behavioral hallmarks of that we that we take in humans would instantly assume it's conscious including single you know learning from individual uh, from individual they can look at another octopus and learn from its behavior they have a very complicated nervous system highly distributed so you know i find it very difficult to say well a priori, it doesn't have a thalamus, it doesn't have my brain or our brain structure, therefore it can't be uh, conscious. Right? Then we have to div- this is why we ultimately we need a more general theory of consciousness yeah, yeah, to yeah. tell us which type of nervous systems, or m- maybe even non-nervous system, which type of, of causal interaction in any system, in any mechanism, give right to, to conscious experience. You know, once we discover, once we go out there, you know, under alien stars, there's going to be all sorts of weird stuff going down. And we, we, we need to understand under what condition can you get uh, conscious experience. I agree with that, actually, and I, 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 I wouldn't say if you don't have a thalamus, you aren't conscious. I would just say if you don't have a thalamus or or a brainstem, we don't know. That's the most you can say. Um, but but I certainly take your point. But the thing of it is that we probably won't be able to answer the question about uh, consciousness in invertebrates or reptiles or oct- uh, octopus um, until we know a huge amount more about the brain itself. Um, and at the moment, you know, there's these big, big outstanding questions, these huge gaps. I mean, we still don't even know how people recollect information. You know, I'll ask you, do you remember where you parked your car? And the answer will come right up into your head. We have no idea how that's done. So there's huge gaps in our knowledge in neuroscience. And that's part of what I mean when I say that sometimes unconstrained thought experiments kind of drive me nuts. Well, but once again, we've seen in medicine, our progress can be very rapid in the absence of knowing fundamental uh, mechanism, right? Most progress in medicine occurs without really understanding the basis. We have now, many of you will have seen a couple of months ago, was on front page of New York Times, reversibility of death in pig, right? That you can take a pig brain, you leave it in a slaughterhouse for four hours, you bring it back into the Yale, Nestana at Yale, Right, you you attach the brain to a sort of dialysis machine for for blood. It recirculates, and then you can sort of you know this brain now shows some electrical, some simple simple signs of electrical activity in individual cells. In a sense, you can take uh, you can take little sliver of of this dead brain t- tissue, and you can now show it shows electrical activity. And structurally, it looks relatively like a normal brain. It has an immune response. It, it begins to have a vascular response. So suddenly, what used to be irreversible. You know, we all know death is irreversible. Well, maybe isn't, you know, it's, it's usually irreversible, but maybe not always irreversible. So now if you have dad, you know, who just died, you know, you have to worry, you know, is it okay to, to give my dad's, uh, my dad's brain to, don- to donation? And what, what are they going to do with it? So science moves very rapidly, in particular in this field. So I think, I think we, we need to think about these things now as we're doing. The uh, four of you seem absolutely... Uh, Totally adequate, uh, more than adequate to talk about issues involving ethics. 
I mean, I think you're demonstrating here that science uh, is fully capable of handling and, and looking at the ethics of what it does. Uh, that said, I, I'd love to know what this panel thinks about whether or not the issue of ethics and science is a, uh, a topic that is totally isolated just to the scientific community and perhaps some very highly trained philosophers as well, or whether it is a, or should be uh, an interface between the science and the non-science community as far as where we go. I, I so appreciated the discussion about what we say about you know, brain farms and things like that. But I think the issue, the bigger issue is, we all know that down the line, this kind of science could lead to the creation of artificial brains and reprogrammed brains. And so we don't want to talk about that right now, but we do know where this might head. What does, what does the scientific community feel about, about the issues that it needs to address as far as ethics are concerned? And do you need to go outside the community necessarily and interface with the non-scientific community to come to some conclusions? Absolutely. We need to talk to as many stakeholders as we can in the community, among politicians who write the laws, among lawmakers, among, you know, religious communities, ethicists, everybody, because many, you know, everybody out there at some point in their life, they may be confronted with this ethical dilemma in, in some shape, way or form. And I, I might add to that. I mean, I think that engaging the community is super important. Um, and not, not just because, you know, you want to forestall complaints down the line, but I think there's just a lot of wisdom there, actually. Um, I think it's unlikely that there are, so to speak, real moral experts. Um, I mean, I think there are people who might have read a lot of the literature on, on uh, the nature of morality and so on, but... I, I don't think there are moral experts. Everybody grows up in a community. People come to understand how to navigate the social world. They understand things about what's right and what's wrong. And sometimes there's a lot of wisdom just in, you know, the folks I meet at Dog Beach. Um, so I think uh, we need to engage the the wider community f because there is a lot of wisdom there and because these things will have a great impact there and they need to know. Yeah. And, and there is lots about public perception, right? I mean, ultimately, that's the public perception that, that yeah. tells us how far we go. Um, and uh, from the stem cells, I mean, the examples we have, for example, Dolly the clone, um, I think got people by surprise. The society was not expecting to see a clone right there. Uh, we scientists, we know this was coming. I mean, people were researching, isolating nuclei, enucleating cells, stem cells, but, uh, but suddenly, boom, Dolly the clone. So that creates like um, a major impact in society. I think this initiative here is, is just trying to avoid something like that. So we are preparing the society for something to come. That's... I think we're learning from our mistakes in the past. Yeah, no, it seems very reasonable. I should weigh in just briefly on that question as well, because here in San Diego, since 2004, we've had this Center for Ethics and Science and Technology, which I think is still an unusual effort to do exactly what you just described, have scientists talking about what they're doing at the cutting edge, hearing from the public about what their worries are, but at the same time also helping to educate them about things that are going on so that they're brought up to speed, and then also together identifying strategies that might help to deal with it. And they may not be experts in the science or experts in the philosophy or ethics, ethical issues, but they can collectively help inform what people might think and do. And I guess Allison is, you know, this program is in part, I think, driven by his desire to figure out what he should be doing and, and having been part of one of those programs with the public. I just wanted to ask, as a scientist, uh, is it possible with, within the scientific community to conclude that we are not going down a certain road? Or is that so antithetical to science that you're going to go down every road you can find and we'll talk about the ethics as we go and we'll just let the chips fall where they may down the line, but I can't stop myself because you know, I, it's there, so I'm going to, I'm going to explore it. No, I think that, that the scientific community does do that. 
And I think the, the contemporary example, although it's slightly complicated, is the, the use of uh, CRISPR-Cas9 on uh, germ cells. And by, by and large, the community decided not to go down that route. Now, as you know, of course, um, there was a scientist in China who, who did it, but made such a mess of it and got such an outcry that um, it will, I think, be a long time before that happens again. Now, that's a prediction, and I could easily be wrong. But uh, that is at least uh, an, an example um, where the scientists came together and made, made that decision, and fairly quickly, too, because it wasn't long after CRISPR was out that that, that decision was made. My question relates to uh, suffering and uh, ethics. Uh, Elon Musk recently proposed that uh, we drop hundreds of nuclear bombs on Mars. Um, he wants to create some kind of environment there. Um, as far as we know, uh, Mars uh, cannot suffer. Do you think it is ethical? And what's the role of brain organoids in that? So. <laughs> yeah, well, um, does seem a bit strange. Um, there are, of course, ethical issues that arise in the context of the environment. Uh, logging old-growth forest um, is another one. But uh, I don't know. When I grew up on the farm, there were always boys out there with guns shooting magpies. They thought that was just the best fun ever. Um, but people don't do that anymore. Um, and maybe they'll think now, too, that they won't uh, <laughs> you know, start trashing other planets now that we've successfully trashed this one. I have one more question, if you don't mind. Uh, I'm an MBA candidate, and I really admire your spirit of being open and welcome to people to contribute in this discourse of uh, stem cell ethics. But don't you feel concerned about the business world rushing into, like, making profits in this area? Why uh, should I be concerned? Oh, because they have no record of doing that ever before. <laughs> That's what they do, right? Yeah, so the point is, uh, in business, we normally don't look for implications of um, ethical dilemmas of issues. Uh -huh. But like philosophy, it's obvious, science, probably it's kind of obvious that you should think about what are the implications of your job. But in business, we want to, the focus is clear. Uh, no one pays us for ethics, you know. Uh, but like for philosophers, I think uh, that's a focus. I see. I, I, I think I, I, I understand your point. I mean, I, I think it's going to be exactly the same with animal research, right? There are private companies that do drug testing in, in animals. Um, they do have to follow international laws on how to treat these animals. I think the organoids will get to a point where it might be the same case and they all have to follow the same regulations, otherwise they're breaking the law. Um, if we are in a gray zone, if a company right now, maybe they already have a brain organoid that's already fully conscious and they're using in their own way. Um, that, that, if that's a possibility, I don't think there is anything we can do it. Let's say that uh, in the future we will be able to simulate brain in a computer and it will be a complex software definitely that needs testing and uh, okay, let's say I get uh, consciousness of somebody by scanning his brain and I will use the consciousness to test the software. Let's say I will just start the testing, the consciousness appears there in the matrix and checks okay, it does what I need it to do and then I stop that. Like, what do you think about that? Like, is it... Uh, would you be okay with uh, using uh, somebody's like consciousness like this? I don't know, maybe it's... Wait, I'm sorry, so w what is precisely the it question? It seems to me like one of the thought experiments that I don't think is productive. It's actually a couple of episodes of Black Mirror, which yeah. you might want to watch. It's just so wildly unconstrained. I mean, it's like it's a science fiction scenario. It's fun as science fiction. The science fiction stories can have ethical things that are, you know, a source of ethical knowledge for us, but in and of itself, the scenario is just 
too wildly unconstrained to draw any conclusion from, I think. But, but maybe, I mean, we go back to the point of the consent form, where the cells came from. And if you allowed uh, scientists, whoever, to do whatever with that um, brain organoid, including projections of consciousness in a computer, yeah, if you sign off, maybe it's okay, you're pro protected somehow. Protected legally. So I think we're supposed to just about wrap up, but it occurs to me we should do one last thing. So this program was driven um, in a meeting of what's called the Stem Cell Oversight Working Group at UC San Diego, which helped to look at the administrative challenges to stem cell research. And in a meeting of that group last year, Allison said, um, you know, if we're going to deal with ethical issues, because we had been dealing with them by a training requirement, which we decided we no longer needed for a variety of reasons, He said, why don't we have a program that's specifically relevant to what we're doing in research here? And he proposed as one example what he's working on, brain organoids. So that's the driving force for this program, which I took it to mean that Allison wanted advice. He wanted to know, what should I do? What should I not be doing at this point? So we've heard one clear bit of advice, which is to watch his vocabulary. <laughs> But um, so, Christoph, Pat, Evan, anything else you would recommend to Allison and other scientists working in this area, they should be thinking about now, not for some thought experiment in the future. Do zip and zap. It would just be, it yeah. would be a cool thing to do, no matter what. Yeah, the why not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I bet you as, you, as you, they become more differentiated, the PCI value will go up. As, know, as they yeah. become more closer to this, no matter the effect, I mean, no matter the ethical implication, just empirically, scientifically, I think it's a exceedingly interesting experiment. Yeah. And it's relatively straightforward to do. Super. I think that is a good idea. And, and, and if, if you do get the kind of results that Christoph is suggesting, then, then we should have another meeting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, because all kinds of different things could be taking place yeah. in the dish. Yeah. And, uh, and we will want to know, that, you know what exactly the facts are that might give a totally different interpretation to the zip and zap than that um, the thing in there is conscious. Yeah. Did you want to say? I would just say it's a, I mean, this connects to your question. It's a, it's a good general principle to always remind oneself that what one thinks one's doing and what one thinks the consequences of what one's doing are going to be very often doesn't turn out to be that way. And um, we have lots of examples in the history of science of that um, leading to both good and bad things. So it's just a good general meta principle, I would say. Yeah. Okay, so well, thank you, everyone. Thank you to our speakers and thank you to the audience for some great questions and keep the conversation going. Thank you.